I'm delighted to announce that the National Association for Primary Education has exclusively released a video from its Primary Education Summit, Visions for the Future. This video, recorded by me, Mark Taylor, and Al Kingsley, talks about creating digital strategies for schools. This video is available for you to watch now at educationonfire.com forward slash blog, which I really hope gives you a taster of some of the amazing content that was available as part of that Primary Education Summit. That's educationonfire.com forward slash blog. Hello, my name is Mark Taylor and welcome to the Education on Fire podcast. The place for creative and inspiring learning from around the world. Listen to teachers, parents and mentors share how they are supporting children to live their best authentic life and are proving to be a guiding light to us all. Hello, welcome back to the Education on Fire podcast. It's great to be back with you. And thank you to everyone who's been in touch about the idea of having this new live video podcast. It's such a great idea and great that so many people are so up for this and think it's such a a positive thing. And as I said last week on the show, the idea is that we would have a live video podcast where you would be able to see me recording the podcast live. But because it will be on YouTube, you will have the chance in the chat to get involved, ask questions and interact at the same time. And so you can be there live effectively in the room while this is happening but also at the same time we'll then make sure that it gets repurposed and will come out on this normal audio feed that you're all listening to here so that's the idea the chance to sort of mix it up a little bit get a little bit more interaction and the chance for you to be involved on a on a personal level as the the podcasts are being recorded so yeah thank you to everyone who's been involved and everyone who's got in touch with that and um yeah I'll let you know more details as it starts to, to grow and gets put into operation. So we're looking at really doing this at the end of this year or certainly once we get to January 2023. So yeah, a very exciting um, change in the show, which I think is going to be very positive for everybody. And today I'm chatting to Joe Dale and he's an independent languages consultant from the UK who works with a range of organisations such as Network for Languages, All, the British Council, the BBC, Skype, Microsoft and The Guardian. He was the host of the TES MFL Forum for six years, and he's a regular conference speaker and a recognised expert on technology and language learning. Now, these conferences and the training courses he's run have been around the world, Europe, North America, South America, the Middle East and beyond. And as well as this, he was a member of the Ministerial Steering Group on Languages for the UK Coalition Government. Recently, Joe was described in a Guardian article as the MFL guru, and he's the man behind the hashtag MFL Twitterati. This is a fascinating conversation, both in terms of languages, but also we talk a lot about podcasting and Joe's been involved in podcasting for many, many years. And so you get a history of the podcast, how things have developed and then up to date in terms of uh, as I entered the podcast world in in, in some of our conversations around that as well. So I hope you find us an interesting conversation with myself and Joe Dale. Hi, Joe. Thank you so much for joining us here on the Education on Fire podcast. It's great to chat to someone who's in the podcast world. And also language isn't something which we've we've covered in, in recent episodes, I don't think. Of course, we have done it in previous times. So welcome. Thanks for being here, first of all. And tell us where the, the language sort of became an important part of your life. Fantastic. Well, first of all, thank you ever so much for allowing me to come onto the podcast, Mark. I really appreciate it. Love to talk about languages, love to talk about podcasting. So I think the next uh, half an hour, 40 minutes or so will be a real pleasure. So I developed an interest in languages as a student at school. To be absolutely frank, it was along with maths, it was um, what I was best at at school. So I did um, French and Spanish and uh, maths A-level. And that's because that's what I really developed a real interest in because it just seemed to be I was able to remember vocabulary well. I was able to recognize patterns well, which I think has a has a toe in maths as well. Maths is all about 
recognizing patterns. And I think language is, is very similar in that way. And yeah, and then I just carried on and ma- made it into, uh, into a career. I did my degree in, uh, in French and linguistics. And then I actually went out to Canada for two years as an English language assistant and went to French speaking Canada. So I was able to practice my French as well as do a bit of teaching. That's where I got my foot in the door with teaching. And then I came back to uh, the UK and did a, uh, a TEFL diploma in uh, Canterbury at Christchurch College and then did my PGC in uh, North Wales in Bangor. And then I taught for two years in Conway, one year in um, Yeovil in Somerset as a secondary school teacher. And then from there, I moved to the Isle of Wight, which is where I still live, which is where I'm talking to you right now. And I worked in a middle school there, nine to 13 year olds for 10 years. And that was when I developed an interest in technology. And yeah, just went from there. And then podcasting wise, I started my first podcast back in 2006, which I know was very, very early days. Absolutely. I mean, I think a lot of people who believe they're super earlier back in sort of 2012, you know, they sort of the, to consider themselves to be the originals as it were. So yeah, that's a whole, a whole different generation almost before that. <laughs> Well, I mean, 2006, well, 2005, let's say, that's when I really sort of first heard about educators podcasting. There were people like Mark Penterton, famous for Coffee Break Spanish and lots and lots of other podcasts. He was hand coding his own RSS feed back in the day because you didn't really have that many free platforms that allowed you to do that sort of thing. I started in 2006 with uh, Podomatic, which at the time was free. I think there's still a free option for Podomatic, but I was able to record personal podcasts as well as ones that I was doing in school. I was really inspired by people like John Johnson, again from Scotland, who I think I'm right in saying is the first UK educator to do a podcast around the same time as Ewan McIntosh as well. But I believe John thinks that he was the first one. I think there's a bit of a tension between the two, but I believe that John was the first one officially. But I think I'm probably the, the first person from England who has a language teaching background to do a podcast in 2006. I even wrote an article about it in the TES as well, because I was doing a number of different blog posts for what was called the ICT blog on the TES website. And I really didn't know what blogging was at the time. I think I started off my first post by saying, I don't really understand what blogging is, but it's sort of like writing a bit of a diary, I suppose, and just writing down how you feel or writing down about your practice. And that's sort of bread and butter to me. And so this is what this is what I'm going to write about. So yeah, blogging and podcasting, it was very much the Scottish educators who I started to connect with at the time through their own blogs, the people I mentioned already, plus other people like Adam Sutcliffe as well, who was a profuse blogger at the time. And then back in sort of 2007, when people started to join Twitter, I was able to connect with more people, not only from Scotland, but from around the world. But I think um, it was really, for me personally, it was the Scottish influence that really got me into podcasting, as well as people like Joe Malloy, from Ireland as well, who was one of the first podcasters as well, probably the first podcaster in Ireland, I would say, who was an educational podcaster. So there we are. And then with my own blog, which is now very much dead, the uh, Integrating ICT into the MFL Classroom blog, which was um, very, very active from 2006 onwards, I actually interviewed different people such as Joe Malloy about how he got into podcasting. And it's just fascinating. It's just something that I've been really, really into for a long time because it's a very human thing the idea of just having a conversation but the fact you can record it the fact you can record anybody anywhere in the world and the fact that the technology has become better and better and better and easier and easier to use it means now it's very easy like we're using squadcast right now it's very easy now to 
record an interview and get good quality audio. Now, back in the day in 2005, 2006, you could have done things like a double ender, which if people don't know what that is, that's simply when you're talking over a tool like Skype or, or what have you at the time, but you're not recording yourself in Skype, you're just recording yourself locally in, say, Audacity or on a mobile phone, and you then send the, the editor your track, and then you then edit it all together. And that's the one way of getting good quality audio. But nowadays, there are lots of solutions to produce good quality audio. And because it's such a crowded marketplace now, even in the education podcast um, community, you have to sound good to stand out, I think. I don't know if you agree with that, Mark, but that's what I think. Yeah, very much so. And it's something which I'm more and more passionate about is the fact that I sort of listen listen to my own podcast in different scenarios to hear what it's like because it's very different when you've got a set of earbuds in going for a walk than when you're in the car or when you're just sat at home and you want to make sure that no matter where the listener is listening that they get the best value they can and they can hear it really easy and the levels are correct and, and all of that kind of thing and I think like you say there are lots of people who sort of jumped on the bandwagon certainly during the pandemic because it seemed like a good thing to do which absolutely it is but there's also that sense of you know, kind of separating yourself out with a professionalism, I guess, which I think is an important rather than, like I say, it is just a conversation, but it, it's um, it's a relationship with the people that are listening. You want to make sure they get the best value possible. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think that with tools like Anchor.fm now, which allows you to go through the whole podcasting process of recording, editing and hosting completely for free, it's meant that lots of people can just, you know, have a play, have a dabble, create a podcast. So I think that it's wonderful that, anybody can create a podcast, but I don't think that anybody can create a great podcast. And normally that's a combination of good quality audio and of course, good quality content. Indeed. And that's where having great guests comes in. So uh, <laughs> tell me, how does your working week look like now? Like say, so you've got these two passions, how do they combine together? What's that sort of diary look like over the course of a week or a month or? Sure. Well, the great thing about being um, an independent consultant means that every day, every week, every month, every year is different. And it's very important to be flexible and be able to change with the times and pivot. And so as a result of the pandemic, for example, back in March 2020, more or less overnight or certainly within a couple of days, all my diary more or less was uh, suddenly wiped out. And I had to then suddenly think, OK, what do I need to do in order to make a living? And what I decided to do was to learn pretty quickly the things that I needed to do in order to offer the sorts of training I was doing face to face but doing it remotely. Now, because my sort of specialism is in how technology can be used to enhance language learning, as well as across the curriculum, but the bread and butter of what I do is work with language teachers. I was able to pivot, as it were, reasonably seamlessly, but I also decided to do over 140 webinars for the Association for Language Learning, as in organize them, and ask people in my contacts list from all over the world to present at those Tilt webinars, technology and language teaching webinars, along with my co-host Helen Myers, who's the chair of the London branch of AWL. That was something which I did completely for free because morally it felt the right thing to do. So in 2020, going from quite a sort of a stilted beginning in March, I suddenly became busier and busier and busier until I was getting incredibly busy and um, it felt a bit like a bit too much. But because I have a very strong work ethic, I was able to organize all the training that I was doing. But sometimes you could easily have three webinars in the same day, you might be doing a webinar for let's say, 
an Australian organization in the morning, say seven o'clock. I did a lot for the Victorian Association of Teachers of Italian or VARTI for short, who I'd worked with before face to face when I'd been to Australia. But they booked me about uh, eight times, I think, in the last couple of years. I maybe I was doing um, a webinar at seven o'clock in the morning and then doing, say, a departmental webinar at, say, four o'clock in the afternoon, sometimes earlier with, let's say, a UK department, and then in the evening doing a tilt webinar. And I wouldn't say that every day was like that, but a lot of days were including at least one webinar and most of the time two webinars. Or I was having online meetings with people around uh, organizing what the next webinar was I was going to do and things like that. So every day, every week <laughs> is different. But right now, because I've sort of redeveloped a passion about podcasting and in particular trying to see if I can find another you know, revenue stream about training people on doing podcasting, I've put together a five-part series on you know, like a podcasting masterclass to take your podcasting to the next level, not just the basics of how to create a podcast with, say, Anchor, but getting to the nitty gritty of advanced editing with Audacity and those sorts of things. And I ran that in June. That was fantastic. There was a, a lady there called um, Mary McFadden who came along from Dublin. She's a music teacher there. And um, we did the five sessions together. We recorded each session. I was able to really help her take her, her podcast into the next level. And off the back of that, she got in contact with the organizers of the um, the national music organization, the PPMTA, which is the Post-Primary Music Teachers Association in Ireland. And a couple of weeks ago, I spoke at their conference about podcasting and the teachers seemed to really like it. So the idea was that I was showing them how they could publish the original compositions that their students make and then combine that with the spoken voice. So you know, the idea of promoting student voice, but with the original compositions in music, which seemed to tick lots of boxes around creativity, publishing to a real audience and things like that. So I love podcasting. I've been appearing on lots of podcasts during the pandemic. I think this is my 20th <laughs> so far. So I just love to talk about podcasting as well as, you know, the bread and butter of what I do using technology to enhance language learning and to yeah, to reach new audiences as well, I think, which is what it's all about. And just take us into that using technology from the language point of view, because I think how you explain the music there makes perfect sense to me. As a musician myself, you know, that idea of being able to share compositions and match it all in with the spoken word and all of that. So is it that same type of thing or, or how does it work for you from, from the language point of view? Sure. So from a language point of view, I think that using technology, there's lots of different benefits of using technology in the, the sort of the two main areas which is sort of the receptive skills of listening and reading and then the production skills of speaking and writing so if you're using sort of quizzing tools like quizzes or quizlet or kahoot or things like that then you get for example immediate feedback which the technology offers lots of these tools use algorithms so it will track the words that you need to master and then send you reminders Students could go on streaks, which allows them to encourage themselves to do better and to revise the words they need to really master. It, it promotes their organizational skills as well in the sense that they can um, get reminders. They can learn whenever they want to. They can be, let's say, on the bus or going for a walk or so on and so forth. And they can be learning at the same time. When they get a bit of dead time, they can carry on learning through Quizlet and, and other such tools. From the teacher's perspective, it's really good in the way that you can generate Excel spreadsheets or Google Sheets from the answers that the students have given. So you get a really good picture of the um, 
the strengths and the weaknesses or the challenges that students are having with certain themes or certain topics, maybe that they have been testing themselves on. So I think those are all really important uh, factors, the way that the student can work at their own pace as well. I think it's wonderful. But I also think that from the point of view of creativity, of promoting speaking and writing, I think things like not necessarily podcasting, that's a much more involved thing. But I think just the children recording their voice using tools like Vocaroo, for example, or SpeakPipe, being able to do audio homeworks for the teacher to give audio feedback using these tools or other tools like Moat as a Chrome extension or a tool like Showbee, which allows you to give audio feedback. Those sorts of um, tools are really fantastic. And then I'm also a big fan of things like Immersive Reader or the unofficial Chrome extension called Use Immersive Reader on websites, which allows the student to select a text on the web, right-click it, click on the the user immersive reader on website's um, little icon. It will then bring up immersive reader. They press play and it will then recognize the language automatically, read it back to them, and then they can do different things such as color code all the different parts of speech. So all the nouns can be a certain color, all the verbs, all the adjectives, all the adverbs. They can choose to see the syllables as well. They can translate individual words or even the whole document. They can get um, pronunciation practice from an individual word as well as the whole document. You can even have things like line focus over so dyslexic readers who might find that there's too much text on the screen at the same time. If you use the line focus feature, what happens is you get like this black shade appearing at the top and the bottom. And so all you can see is just the one line appearing, or you can have up to three lines if you want to as well. And that stops this idea of the text swimming in front of the student's eyes. If they are dyslexic, that can be one of the features of dyslexia. And so by using that option, or what we used to do in the old days was a ruler and just literally move a ruler down the page. That's another way in which you can use technology in a very um, transformative, I think, way to cater to different um, needs of different students and promote accessibility through the use of technology. So there's lots of ways in which technology can be used in languages, but those are just a few ideas to start off with. Yeah, I love that. And and you are literally speaking my language from that point of view, because I love the fact that, you know, learning doesn't have to be between half past 11 and 12.30 before lunch when you're doing something, you know, let's say the dead time, they're doing it on the bus, whatever it happens to be, you know, having those options, I think is much more conducive to just learning all the time and, and also takes the stress out of it and, and, and many other things as well. How do you find people's and teachers' approach when this sort of comes up? Is it kind of, yes, we love the idea and we're jumping in with both feet? Do you get people who are a bit resistant? Or how do you sort of use that grey area to kind of get people on board, maybe if you've got a school who's really keen on it, but maybe some people who are less keen? Yeah, so, well, there's there's lots of ways in which I can address that question. First of all, if I'm going into an individual department, let's say it might be, let's say the head of department has invited me in and it might be that he or she is really, really keen, but there might be some people in the department who just don't get it or don't have that interest in technology at all and think that um, traditional methods of teaching are uh, the way in which um, you know it's always worked in the past. Therefore, why do I need this technology? What's this technology going to do to help what I normally do? And I always say, you know, I'm not here to be selling you anything. I always show things which are free. I'm independent for a reason. I'm not representing any company or anything like that. I'm just trying to demonstrate, model what I regard as good practice or what other people have said are good practice as well. And uh, that can be a challenge, but I'm obviously used to that in the sense that I've been doing this for many, many years. And I think that as long as you can 
show people practical examples of how a tool can be used in order to offer affordances which can be not replicated in an easy way in traditional methodology, then that's one way of persuading people that technology is a good thing. But if they're not interested, then that's absolutely fine as well. I'm just, you know, I just do my thing. I show people what I think is good. But I think what's happened in more recent years is because of the use of social media, namely um, on Twitter, the MFL Twitterati community, which if people don't know is a community of language teachers, language consultants like myself and language organizations, not only from the UK and from Ireland, but in fact, the hashtag is used by teachers from literally all over the world. That has made a big difference, in my opinion, because of the fact that you are constantly on a daily basis having pedagogical discussions with colleagues about the power of technology, how it can be used. People are sharing examples of how they're using X, Y and Z tool in the classroom and posting it on Twitter. The fact that all the tweets are archived as well means that you can then do a search for, let's say, the, the hashtag MFL Twitterati plus a keyword or more recently, I've discovered these uh, Twitter search operators, which is a whole new ball game. So what it allows you to do is you can put in little bits of sort of code, as it were, or keywords into your search, and it allows you to find out information really, really quickly and easily. So for example, I manage a list called MFL Twitterers, and each list has its own number. So all I have to do is put list colon and then the number for that list and then put in a keyword and it will search only that particular list. Or if I wanted to find which is the most favorited tweet that somebody has said in that list about a certain tool, let's say Flip, which is another good tool for promoting speaking and listening skills, I could put in list colon, then the number, then Flip, and then IMN underscore faves colon, and then a number like 100. And then that would then tell me which tweets that have included the word Flip have been favorited a hundred or more times. And so by doing that, you can make your searches much, much more granular. So you can then see quite easily which are the most popular tools. And that not only is that good from the point of view that you can get a good idea of how people are using them in the classroom by doing a search for, let's say, a particular tool, seeing what the results are like, and then working out the ways in which most or, or the most popular uses are for that particular tool. And then you also get the opportunity to contact the people who have tweeted about those particular tools and get in touch with them and say, I really liked your use of Flip in that example. Can you tell me a little bit more about that? So that can be another way of persuading those people who are, let's say, more reluctant about the use of technology compared to other people. That can be a way of persuading them. But I think, I don't know if you agree with this, but I think that in a way the genie is out of the bottle now as a result of the pandemic, the fact that we had those lockdowns teachers had to use technology. And as a result of that, I would hope that the horizons of some people have widened and maybe have seen the power of the use of some technologies. For example, screencasting would be a tool which was something that lots of schools didn't allow live sessions using tools like Zoom or Google Meet or Microsoft Teams. All the content had to be delivered asynchronously. And so there were lots of teachers who learned how to do a screencast who had never done one before. So simple things like using tools like Loom or Screencastify or Screencastomatic or just something simple like recording some audio in a PowerPoint and then exporting that as a video clip. So I, I would hope that the teachers who maybe were reluctant to use technology before for whatever reason, because maybe they were just you know time poor or didn't have that interest, as a result of having to use the technology that maybe 
their horizons have changed a little bit, which is not to say they're going to be you know, avid uses of technology now, but I would hope that they haven't just thrown all of that away and gone back to the way they were teaching before. I don't know, what do you think, Mark, about that? I think that's really true. And I think for me, it's a sense that what gets overwhelming is the fact is that we're now doing everything around technology. We're going to use so many tools. We're going to do so many things. But I think what you explained there is really important in terms of there are so many tools out there. Find out what you're wanting to deliver and what works for you and then adapt that, you know, maybe one thing at a time. You know, this did work. Great. We'll carry on with that. This didn't work. So we'll get rid of that. And like you say, the interaction with people via Twitter to find out more information and to actually sort of dive in in your own time without having to wait till, you know, it's now you know, the end of term and we're going to do some CPD and then maybe I'll do it another time. It's that kind of continual kind of ability to sort of learn, I think is really important. So I think that kind of hopefully, like I say, sort of since the pandemic, it's not all or nothing which the pandemic kind of enforced on us, but now we can just ease back. We know the face-to-face is important, but we know that the technology and tools which are available are really beneficial as well. And and we sort of talk about this sort of hybrid blended learning, but I, I think that will look different for everybody and not to kind of feel like it has to be one size fits all. What we want is that diversification and, you know, what supports you as a teacher, but also what supports any given child. And I think that organicness is how education will change for the better over time. Yeah, I agree totally. And I think um, I also wanted to say as well that I'm not trying to teach a bash at all when I'm saying about people who are reluctant, who were reluctant to use technology. I'm all about, you know, encouraging and being supportive. And that's why as I said earlier, morally, it felt exactly the right thing to do to organize all these uh, these talk webinars for the Association for Language Learning. And we would regularly, certainly in 2020, we were regularly getting 100 people plus coming along to them. And I just thought, well, I've got a skill set to help with this. So I'm all about helping and supporting and encouraging. So I didn't want it to come across as if I was teacher bashing, but it's all about opening people's eyes. And, and what you just said as well a moment ago about you know, just trying one or two tools. I always say that at the end of either a face-to-face session or an online session, don't try everything that we've done today. Just choose one or two things, see what the students think of it. If they like it, fantastic, do more of that, but don't just stick with that and that's it. Try some other things. If they don't like it, then try something else or ask them their feedback about what it was about it that they didn't like. And then the whole piece around GDPR and is it free and all this sort of thing is also really important. These are always the questions that come up whenever I'm showing people new tools, which is another very important consideration as well. Absolutely, because I guess it's that kind of what the school allows, what the school can afford. But also, you know, it's a very interesting conversation that, you know, we can we can make do with this and it works fine. But I know there's this other option which would just transform what we're able to do, but it might cost some money. And I think sometimes people then say, well, then that's not possible because, of course, budgets are really tight and there's loads of things going on. But I think the really enlightened and the fearless heads think along the lines of, well, we can't do it today, but we are going to implement it. So let's find out how we can. And that builds that creativity and that kind of growth mindset of kind of let's create the world we want in the way that we can. And like you say, not using every tool, we're using this tool. And actually, we can sort of grow into it as we as we get that opportunity. And I think that not only is fantastic from from a teacher's point of view and, and a school's point of view, but just that mindset and the way of being just filters through into the ethos of the school as well. And that's very hard to document, but I think it really does make a difference from the experience that I've had anyway. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that the power of having a community like the MFL Twitter RT means that 
you can have this sort of drip feed approach whereby you can be reading tweets every day if you wanted to or when you get some downtime when you're having a cup of coffee or what have you and every single time you do that you're going to pick up an absolute gem i think but also you very quickly i think you learn what is you know like what are the cream of the crop out there to do with say certain tools for achieving a particular aim but i, I love the way in which teachers can have these you know professional pedagogical discussions about i'm trying to do x y and z what's the best tool for doing that for example so not focusing on the tool but focusing on the pedagogy which is the way it should be and i feel very proud of the fact i've had a big hand in helping to nurture this community which includes you know some of the best teachers in the whole of the uk i would say that said as well of course you can be a brilliant teacher without using technology but i would say that you could argue that in the 21st century you'll be doing a disservice to the students if you're not using technology at all but i've no lots of teachers who are fantastic who don't use a lot of technology but what i love about the social media groups that i'm in not only on twitter but obviously on facebook there are lots of really fantastic facebook groups as well when people talk about languages and pedagogy as well is the fact that you can learn really really quickly for free from your colleagues from other people about what are the best tools out there for achieving a certain pedagogical aim and i think that, that is something which is very different from, let's say, 20 years ago or, or longer ago than that. Of course, teachers have always shared resources and shared ideas, but uh, maybe on a more you know departmental level or local level, whereas now you can share with people from literally all over the world. And I might, let's say, I might be a big fanboy of a teacher in the States, let's say, who probably I'll never meet, but I know that I can learn so much from that person just by following their tweets and maybe doing a webinar with them or whatever it might be. So I think the world we live in nowadays is amazing, the, the connectedness that we have. And thank goodness, in a way, that we had the pandemic now rather than, let's say, 10 years ago or 20 years ago without those same connections. And thank goodness, certainly in a languages context, that we had the MFL Twitterati as well. And I think for me, there are two things that sort of struck me. One is the fact that that's essentially why education on fire is an initial passion project kind of got going because it was that you know seeing teachers who got in who were so passionate about what they wanted to do but didn't quite feel like they were getting the support or the cpd or were able to get what they needed within the the confines of their school or their staff room as it were and it meant that we could share these conversations, we could share the tools, we could share these understandings, which might be something small they could implement straight away, or it might be we could open the door to a resource or, or a conversation they could take to their head and say, look, I know this is a little bit further out of the box than maybe we'd normally do, but it's happening over here, this person's implemented it, you know, can we at least have a conversation about it? And I think, I think that's really good. And I think it, the second thing is that opens up that technology door of there are many different strands, like you said, you know, I'm happy to tip my toe into Twitter and find ways to find this. And actually, I like that person and they have a podcast and I can find out more information about them, get to know them, that know, like and trust from the personality sense, which is what I like, you know, there are great websites, great tools, great authors, but it's nice to know something about them. You've heard their voice, you kind of get to know them as a person. And that's a fantastic thing to be able to do just behind a great website or a great looking book cover, as it, as it were. And that's where my passion lies. But like I say, it's using all these things together in the way that supports you in the way your world works, which is doesn't have to look a certain way now. It can actually be whatever's the most supportive thing for you. And I think that's absolutely fantastic. Yeah, just on the point of the voice, that just reminded me of back in the early days of, let's say, 2006 and 2007, when there were lots of teachers who were very nervous about the idea of recording their voice and putting out a podcast or recording a screencast. I can remember the power of just hearing someone's voice 
who I was connected with, let's say via Twitter, but I'd never heard them before and getting excited about the fact that you could hear their voice and all the all the different types of meaning that is conveyed through the human voice, which obviously to podcasters is is something which is very obvious and clear. But I think that if you followed someone for a long time and then you suddenly get to hear their voice, you get to see or understand a different dimensions about them, which is incredibly powerful. That seems like such a long time ago now, but I can remember getting very excited about different teachers. I could finally hear their voice or maybe even like a long form interview that they'd done and I'd never heard them talk about anything in depth. And so that's another reason why why I love podcasting. But it's just it's just funny. I remember there was um the teacher, um Jonathan Wiley in the States, and I'd been following him for years on articles and blog posts around EdTech, but I'd never heard his voice. And then he started a podcast and um I was uh, blown away by the fact that um I could immediately hear he had a Glaswegian accent. And then I suddenly thought, he's not American at all. He's <laughs> he's not Jonathan Wiley the American. He's Jonathan Wiley the Glaswegian who is now in in the States. And it's just like, wow. So that's another reason why I love the human voice and the sort of way in which you can understand. And another reason why I love podcasting is you can't really hide behind what you're saying. It's how you're feeling can be conveyed so powerfully through the human voice. Whereas in a blog post, in a tweet, there can be misunderstandings. But I think that in your voice, you can hear if someone is passionate or if someone's got a cold as I have today, or if someone you know is being sincere or what have you. I think that that comes across in the human voice. There's nowhere to hide the human voice. And that's, as I said, one reason which I love podcasting, because it seems in the world of fake news and everything, it feels like it is something which is authentic, particularly when you have educators talking to educators. I don't know if you agree with me, Mark. Yeah, I do. And I think also so much about online lessons can be very, here we are, we have half an hour, we're going to do X, Y, and Z, and it becomes quite transactional. Whereas when it's face to face, you know, you're wandering in, you might have a drink, you know, you're getting stuff out of your bag. There's sort of those different interactions that go on, which is harder to replicate online. And I think podcasting sits beautifully in the middle of that because, you know, we've got some time together, but we're having a conversation, you know, we've got a bit more breadth, we've got a bit more understanding, you know, we're not scripted, you know, we want to sort of dive into some of the bits of conversation that come out. And I think it sits beautifully in the sort of the middle of this sort of face to face and online world in a way that I'm not sure another medium really does quite do that. Yeah, I agree. And I think I love the way in which you can learn about, let's say, your favorite educator or your favorite musician, for example, I've been really into um podcasts around people interviewing music artists that I was really into in the 1990s, for example, Ned's Atomic Dustbin. I'm a big fan of Ned's Atomic Dustbin. And the guitarist name is Rat. Obviously, that's not his real name, but his stage name is Rat. And he's notoriously very shy. But I was able to listen to a podcast by um, Laura Kidd, who's known as Penfriend on uh, on Twitter and on YouTube. And she had done this interview with him and it was like an hour long and I got to learn all these different things about him, which I'd never known before. And so again, with podcasting, you can, well, there are no rules, basically, there are no rules and you can have, as a listener, you can learn about people that maybe you were really, really into back in the day, but you can learn about things which you had no idea about them or hear their backstory. So it's a win-win. It's just, I think the the elephant in the room is the fact that it does take a long time to produce a good quality podcast. But there are lots of people out there who are passionate about doing that. So that's brilliant. But um, that is something to consider. You know, it takes time to work out who you're going to interview, program the slot, make out um, the sort of content that you want to ask, have it as natural as possible, record it. And then, of course, the editing. So let's say if we speak for 
half an hour, 45 minutes, then you could easily multiply that by three, four, five times, depending on how much of a perfectionist you want to be in the editing process. And then once you've actually done all that, then you've got to publish it and put it out. So I'm I'm very impressed about the numbers that you get on your downloads, having attended the uh, the educational podcasting webinar that we were both attended recently when you were a speaker. I was a listener by uh, Fox Hill Education. That was fascinating. Do you want to talk a little bit about that, Mark, maybe about how that came about and what you took from that? Yeah, well, that was a really great thing to be involved in. It came about because there's Jess Shepard. She was the person who had organized it and she got some great guests for me and we had some conversations and we'd been able to get together at BET and sort of have that face-to-face interaction as well as the as those other things as well. And so, yeah, I was, I was delighted when she asked me to come and be involved and that there were three other guests on there as well. And just that ability to talk about education podcasts and why they're popular and the sorts of people that are listening and, and kind of why we do what we do. And I think it's interesting to hear different people's sort of take on that and, and what they're trying to do. And so much of it is just about, you know, wanting to have really important conversations to to share their passions, to kind of have that opportunity to help the community, you know, that both immediate, but also like I say, worldwide, because there's no limit to the number of people that could listen, which I think is just a fabulous thing. And um, and I love the, the ability to, you know, to, to talk to you, you know, we're here face to face chatting online, but we know there are people all around the world taking part in it in their, in their own way and getting what they need from it. And, um, and that you don't know either. That's the great thing. You know, people get in touch and they say, oh, this was a great piece of information or I love the way this happened or hadn't come across this person before and now they've really opened up my eyes to something else. And it's a great service and it's a great thing to, to be able to share and it's a passion of mine which just keeps growing. And the more, the more I can do and the more I can take part in it, then, then the better. Yeah, absolutely. And do you feel that, let's say, in the last few years, as a result of tools like Anchor, that there are more educational podcasts out there? Or do you think that we, we've we had a couple of revolutions, let's say, I mean, 2006, 2005 felt like a bit of a revolution, even though there weren't that many people doing podcasts at the time, certainly in the educational sphere. Do you think that as a result of tools like Anchor, that there are more educational podcasts out there? Well, according to Pod News, which uh, is a podcast directory for news information around podcasting, they were saying that the number of listeners to podcasts in the UK is going up and up and up. So do you feel that we are going through another revolution or do you just feel that the number of people listening to a podcast or are interested in listening to podcasts from an educational point of view is increasing? I think there are two parts to it. One is there are more people producing it because of the pandemic. People wanted to do something and that was a way that became easy to do, like say, through some of these different platforms. And I think the other thing was is that the UK has always lagged behind the US. The US has had many more podcast listeners earlier on and the UK sort of follows on. But I think the other thing the pandemic did is there were real household names who started podcasts. So not education related, but might be comedy related or whatever it happened to be. And they've got really big audiences and therefore many millions of people who would never have listened to a podcast suddenly jumped on board as a listener. And therefore, once you're, you know, you're on Apple or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts, you've got this whole library. And then you start to think, well, this was great because I knew so-and-so was doing something. But actually, this is my field, you know, so I'm an educator. What sort of things are out there for me here? And then you sort of find your lane and you find the people they connect with. So I think I think it's a combination of both of those things, which has really had that sense that it's exploding. Because certainly 
now when people say, what do you do? And I say, oh, I'm a podcaster. They go, oh, great. And they start asking some interesting questions about it. Whereas two or three years ago, they were like, yeah, I've definitely heard of a podcast, but I'm not quite sure who, what, where, and when I'd listen to one. And that really has changed, like I say, in, in the last couple of years, sort of, there's been a really big difference. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And I think that what you were talking about there about, you know, like the big names, as it were, getting into podcasts. I can remember back in 2005, 2006, well, 2005 in particular, The Guardian were probably one of the first organizations, mainstream organizations who started to promote podcasts through, for example, the Ricky Gervais podcast and other podcasts at the time, I think. And then the BBC were quite reluctant for a while, didn't want their, you know, their content to be just going out as a podcast. And then suddenly they changed their mind and then suddenly lots of things were available as a podcast. I suppose from a from an indie podcaster point of view, the annoying thing about that is it's quite difficult to break into the charts, as it were, if you're an indie podcaster, if they're all being flooded by the mainstream ones. But then you can't have it both ways. <laughs> it's good to raise the profile of podcasting. And I totally agree with you that in recent years, the profile has been raised. But then to try and be an indie podcaster that gets lots of downloads, that's why I'm so impressed by your your monthly you know, numbers, is a tall order to do. So I think you've done brilliantly, Mark. Well, thanks very much. And and like you say, it is all relative because like you say, you know, some of these household names, you know, there's a reason they're doing it. And it's because they've got multi-millions of people listening every week. And with that comes the opportunity for advertising and, and income streams and opportunities. And even as someone who's, like say, being an indie podcaster for a long time, you know, we're not talking about the same sorts of figures, but people don't have that sort of connection between sort of the, the different levels of that. I mean, if you talk about percentages, then, you know, education on fire is in, you know, the top few percent of podcasts based on, on, on the numbers. If you're talking about the difference between me and, you know, a household named comedian who's doing it, then there's no comparison because there's already a million people that know that person and only people organically get to know sort of an indie person depending on on their content so yeah there's a big difference between exactly (laughs) what those numbers might be from from some of the others but like i say i think the more people who are aware and doing it the better really yeah absolutely but i think that the people that who go out and seek indie podcasters cherish those podcast episodes extremely highly which is not to say that those people that listen to a famous celebrity or what have you and their podcasts I'm, I'm sure that they cherish those as well but as i mentioned earlier about ned's atomic dustbin having been into really you know cool indie music in the late 80s early 90s i'm always seeking out you know the gems in the independent scene be it in music or in this case in podcasting to find you know the gems which are there and i think that um those people that have that sort of mindset and want to put in the effort to search out the good content really, really cherish and value the sorts of things that you're doing that other people are doing who are producing these podcasts because it's not something that you can do quickly and easily. It does take time, effort and love to produce a good quality podcast. So again, thank you again. I think for me as well is you can, we've got the data coming back to you is you really do feel like you're part of a, a community because it's very much sort of me and today me and you talking and, and we know there are you know thousands of people who are going to be listening coming in. But I also know that they're going to be listening next week and the week after and week after. We, you don't get people coming and going. Once they've come and they've found you and they like what you're doing, they're sticking around and then they're telling their friends. And that's the really lovely thing. So whether it's one person, whether it's five people or, you know, five million, it's always about just me and you. 
whoever you are and you as a guest obviously and and i think that's a wonderful it's a wonderful thing and it's an intimacy which again is something which is quite unique to podcasting yeah definitely and and i think it's really cool if the podcast can see their listener as one person so they're trying to cater to that individual person when they're talking so they're not necessarily i mean i remember on a facebook group a couple of days ago people were talking about the idea that you shouldn't introduce your podcast as saying hi everyone that you should be talking as if you're talking to one person, which I thought was a really interesting idea. I mean, they've, they've talked about that on radio for years and years and years. People like, you know, Terry Wogan on The Breakfast Show and people were saying it always felt that he was talking just to them. I don't know if you have that mindset as well as if you're thinking of this imaginary listener in your mind when you're interviewing someone you're, or you're talking to someone as if you've got this one listener in mind or maybe you've given that listener a name, which is something which uh, some podcasters advise as well. Is that how you set up your mindset when you're doing your podcast there, Mark? Yeah, I, I think for me, it changes and morphs over the year. And certainly there's the idea of this avatar and having someone that you're speaking to. I'm also very aware that there's such a diverse type of people that listen. They're passionate about education and that creation, you know. So the person that's listening today when we're talking specifically about podcasts and how we're using technology and languages isn't necessarily the same person who was going to be talking about music except they are because it's the creativity and the learning process and the shared experience rather than just that particular kind of topic is is it were so um certainly lots of people when they start it's kind of you know i'm really into learning fractions and i'm going to create a whole podcast just specifically about one particular area which is absolutely perfect when you're sort of delivering information which is very focused but i think because we started here on education on fire as kind of a concept the idea of inspiration and creativity that has a lot of breadth and so we have the people within the education world we have people who are working around the education world we have independent consultants you know we're passionate about the way people learn and i think that's where I get my excitement from because I think it's changing education in lots and lots of kind of pinpoints, as it were, that then as we share that, people start to sort of come and, and share that experience. And, and that's what I really love. Yeah. And particularly the way in which your listenership is very loyal, the fact that they may start listening to a podcast episode thinking, well, I'm not necessarily interested in everything here, but I might pick up something. But the fact that you have people that come back regularly to listen to the episodes, they might pick up something that they never realized that they needed to know about, but then suddenly that can put them in a whole new creative direction, a little bit like, you know, when you go to a festival and you have like a season ticket and it means you can then just hop in and hop out of different sessions. You're not paying to go to an individual concert, let's say. And as a result of that, you can then come across something which is fantastic. Or maybe if you're surfing around on uh, on a TV trying to work out what you want to watch, you can come across something which is then fabulous, which grabs your attention and takes you off in a whole new direction. Yeah, I love that. It's so beautifully put. And I think that essentially is it. You know, people who go to Glastonbury or whichever festival it happens to be is they go for the vibe, they go for the feel, and they'll talk about their favorite act and, and that shared experience. And I think that's exactly it. As a community, certainly as an education on fire community, that's what we are because it might be Diana Ross playing. It might be the Arctic Monkeys. <laughs> it could be anybody. But people don't go just specifically for those artists. They know they're going to get great quality singing, great quality bands, and a great experience. And, and I think that's a really interesting and, and a really great way of putting it. Thank you. <laughs> So just as we wrap up now, obviously the acronym FIRE is really important for us here on Education on FIRE. And by that, we talk about feedback, inspiration, resilience, and empowerment. What's the first thing that strikes you when you hear those four things? Well, I think feedback is incredibly important from the point of view of students and teachers and consultants and trainers. I think that 
One of the things which um, immediately jumps at me is the way in which teachers more and more are exploring multimodal feedback. So we're not just sticking with written feedback because of the technology. We can now explore using the power of the human voice for audio feedback. And I know this has been something which has been discussed by educators for many years, but I think as a result of the pandemic, people have been using, as I mentioned, screencasting, have been giving audio feedback to students. And I just think that that offers something different from written feedback, the way in which it's more intimate, the way in which the teacher can use their voice to convey a message as opposed to just giving a quick written description or even just a mark. The students are more likely to take on board the feedback that's been given to them because it's the human voice, because it's their teacher. And I think that's something which is really lovely to see that people are exploring the power of um, audio feedback much, much more. I think from the point of view of uh, inspiration, I'm inspired every day, as I know lots of other people are, by the power of Twitter, by the power of the MFL Twitterati, the way in which you can have your concepts changed or you can be inspired by some amazing educator sharing a blog post or an image or an example of how they're using a particular tool. Or more recently, let's say there's been huge numbers of debates around the new GCSE in languages and how some people agree with the approach and other people absolutely don't agree with the approach. And I think that that's very inspiring that we have this broad church, as one says, and you can be inspired by people who maybe, as we've said earlier, that you'll never meet face to face, but you can just follow them on Twitter or in Facebook and you can learn so much from them. What were the other two again? Just remind me. <laughs> so um, resilience and empowerment. Right. So, well, resilience, I've certainly learned how to be resilient in the last 13 years as a result of being a, a consultant. You're always looking over your shoulder for the next gig, as it were. You have to be very, very tenacious in this job. Every day, every week, every month is different, as I've said a couple of times. And so you always need to be thinking, when's the next revenue stream coming in? Or what happens if plan A doesn't work out? What's plan B going to be? And then just, uh, yeah, then just go from there. So those are a few answers. Hopefully that's, um, that's ticked that box for the, uh, the finishing off of the episode. Lovely. Great. Well, Joe, thank you so much for sharing all those insights. It's been absolutely fascinating, both um, from a learning point of view and a podcasting point of view and someone who's been in it for, for such a long time. So, so just leave us where people can find out more and, and how they can connect. Yeah, that'd be lovely. Well, first of all, thank you so much for the opportunity. I've really enjoyed having an authentic conversation with you. We could have obviously talked for much more about language and technology, but in this particular case, it felt really appropriate to uh, to talk more about educational podcasting. And I like the way in which it was a conversation in the sense that I was asking you questions as well as you asking me questions. I thought that worked really, really, really well. So to get in contact, that's really easy. Twitter is probably the easiest place to uh, connect with me. I'm just at Joe Dale on Twitter. I've been on Twitter since 2007. I've now been able to amass 34,600 followers. It's a bit crazy if you think about them all in one room at the same time. But if you're not following me and you'd like to, I would love to hear from you if you're interested in languages and technology and podcasting, anything you've heard in this episode that ticks a box, get in contact. I'd love to have more conversations with you. If you'd like me to retweet a message to your followers, that's fine as well. No problem at all. Email wise, I'm uh, joedell.talk21.com. So that's easy to connect with me that way. And if you want to check out my YouTube channel, it's just joedell100. Or you can go to youtube.com forward slash C, the letter C, forward slash Joe Dale. And that's also available as well. But if you just search for my name, Joe Dale 100 on YouTube, then you'll find 
not only those 140 Tilt webinars I talked about, but also many, many other webinars that I've appeared on or have hosted as well. So please do get in touch if you're interested in knowing more about the sorts of things that I do. Fantastic, Joe. Thank you so much for sharing all of that fantastic information. And yeah, hopefully people will get in touch and, and share their experience. Cool. Thank you for listening and being part of this wonderful community. With over 300 episodes, I've collated 20 resources from guests that have been on the show to help you in your educational journey and those of you involved with young people. Just go to educationonfire.com and you can sign up on the homepage. Thanks for listening to the Education on Fire podcast. For more information of each episode and to get in touch, go to educationonfire.com. Education is not the filling of a pail, but the lighting of a fire.